Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. Before we get started, a few quick things. First, on Monday, June 21st, I'm dropping the latest essay that I have on the big three major record labels, Universal, Sony, and Warner. This is going to be a strategic deep dive on how each of these major record labels are faring in the streaming era, what moves have they been making, because there's been a lot of movement lately. You look at all the music catalog investments that have been happening. Warner went public last year. Universal's about to go public. There's a SPAC that's about to get 10% in Universal. Sony's been buying up a bunch of independent distributors. This is the game right now. And there's more and more companies like Peloton and TikTok that not only have music licensing deals, but they are maximizing those and making a name for themselves too. Make sure you go on the Trapital website. And if you're subscribed to the weekly email newsletter, you'll get it in your inbox. And I'll also post a audio version of the essay on the Trapital podcast feed. So you'll get it here as the next episode after this one. If this is your first time listening to the Trapital podcast, welcome. It's great to have you. If you listen and enjoy the episode, make sure you follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go back and check the archives too. Bunch of gem interviews there and stuff that people still go back to to this day. And if you've been rocking with the podcast for a while, appreciate the support and I'm glad you've still been with us for all this time. Make sure that you rate and review the podcast, continue to spread the word. That's how Trapital continues to reach the right people. Now you're about to listen to the great conversation that I had with entertainment attorney Laron Rogers. He represents some of the biggest names in the game, Kanye West, Rick Ross, Migos, Monique, Steve Harvey, Rod Wave, even the Miami Marlins. He's worn a number of hats, and I think this is important in his role because we talk a lot about how he truly works with artists to develop a plan. How could they set up their business like a Fortune 500? This is going beyond just contract negotiations and all of the standard things that some may assume that lawyers do. And it's great to look at someone like Rick Ross because I think he's a testament to a lot of this. Look at all the business moves and ventures that Rick Ross is involved in. The dude owns 25 different wing stops. He's a low-key real estate mogul now. He had bought the house that Evander Holyfield had had in Georgia for a fraction of the price. Ross now cuts his own lawn to save money and he rents it out to film studios like Tyler Perry. And it was actually the set of Coming to America, the movie that it came out earlier this year. I learned a ton in this episode, and I hope you do too. Here's my conversation with Laron Rogers. We got Laron Rogers here, who is a well-known and respected entertainment attorney. He's represented a bunch of the big name clients that you all know in the game. And the one thing that I always recognize with entertainment attorneys is that you all wear a number of different hats beyond just being an entertainment attorney. I guess if you were to think about all the different jobs you have, how many do you think it actually is compared to the actual work of doing law? Man, let me start. Psychologist. First, <laughs> sometimes even before being a lawyer, I'm the psychologist, business advisor, certainly. In my case, since I have a finance background, I talk extensively with my clients about their finances outside of how much money they earn, about, you know, just how to keep the money and, and what to do with the money. And then you're a legal advisor, sometimes family counselor, <laughs> you know, you know, all those things. It's just part of the gig, man. It's just part of the gig and, you know, part of providing white glove service for our clients. <laughs> 
What first brought you into it? What made you want to get into entertainment? So when I first went to law school, I was really going to be a sports agent, not in necessarily in the music space. Uh, I played baseball. I was drafted out of high school by the Braves, got a baseball scholarship to Oklahoma State, got hurt my junior year. I was like, oh, okay, let me get this education stuff together. And then you know, I wanted to go to law school. So I went to law school and actually became a sports agent. My second year of law school, signed the 33rd pick in the NFL draft as my first client while I was in law school. And I was off and running being a sports agent. You know, after law school, got a job at a big law firm here in Atlanta, kept my sports practice, was running around on the weekends, being Jerry Maguire. And during the week, being a low-level grunt associate, learning how to practice law really well, and moved over to a boutique firm that did both some sports and entertainment and general corporate work. One of the partners did a lot of entertainment work. And so I would just learn the entertainment business, doing some of his overflow work as a young lawyer. Look up some years later now, you know, 70% of my clientele is in the sports entertainment technology space. So, you know, that's just how it is. That's how it's evolved, man. And I bet even within that, there is a bunch of differences, right? You have sports clients, you have music clients, you have film clients. What are some of those differences like working with that range? You know, I'm pretty unique in that regard because, you know, most entertainment sports lawyers are pick one. You either pick sports, you pick music entertainment, or you pick film and television. And I've been very blessed in that I've had a really broad cross-section of clients. So I've gotten not only good familiarity with each of them, but, you know, just good relationships and expertise in each of these areas. So at the end of the day, it's about servicing the client. You know, I don't treat an athlete any differently than I treat an executive at a Fortune 500 company or someone who's starting a startup technology company. We just walk them through the process, give them white glove service, you know, and just try to over deliver on what we do. But, you know, some of the things I think we're uniquely positioned to do is that I see angles that other lawyers don't see, partly because I have a finance background. I can talk finance with them. When I'm talking to an in-house counsel at a Fortune 500 company or a startup, I understand their cash flows. I understand how a pitch deck should look in the VC world, the private equity world. So when I'm talking to clients in the music space, in the sports space, I try and put them in the same category that I treat Fortune 500 companies and their boards. I say, look, you're the boss. This is your brand. This is your company. Have me part of the team, but we got to build a board of advisors and a team such that you can operate more like a corporation and we can make corporate moves and corporate decisions and not everything just be willy-nilly and reactional. Let's plan this thing out. I mean, corporate corporations don't just poof, here they are. They build and they plan and there's strategy behind it. So I try and bring that perspective, like let's build strategy so we can build this out to have success. That's one of the things I have. And before I even go further, man, first of all, I want to congratulate you because, you know, I didn't know about the platform right before I jumped on. I just did a quick Google, like everybody else, like, who, you know, who am I going to be talking with? Who's Dan? I saw just the last couple of episodes you had, my guy, Johnny Shipes from Cinematic. I have a couple artists up there with Johnny. I worked with him. Tracy Chan, who interestingly enough, I invested in Crowd Album, his company that he exited to Spotify. Oh, that's what's up. This had to be like 2012, bro, like 13, you know? So I was an early investor with Crowd Album. Tracy's a really smart guy. Then who else you have? James Lindsay was on there, which I have some dealings, some business dealings with him. Ventures on Rap Snacks, Brandon Panky at Live Nation. Like, these are the homies. I'm like, oh, man, you got the homies. So congratulations to you, brother. I appreciate the things that you're doing for the culture and for the business because it's needed and it's necessary. So I want to give you some kudos, my man. 
Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, hearing you rattle off those names, it's a reminder of how small these circles really are. Everyone really knows everyone. Yo, everyone who's doing something <laughs> and who's old enough to have been in the business for a while, right? <laughs> right. Well, you said something interesting there that I do want to go back to about how you want to make your clients, musicians specifically, look at how they're running things the same way a Fortune 500 company would. And I imagine for a certain type of artist, that's an easy switch. They have that corporate mind. They want to set things up. But I also imagine for some of them, it can be a bit difficult because they like the flexibility. And that's especially how things were in the early stages. Is that a challenge for you to be able to implement that with them? First of all, you just have to take the client where they are, right? And there's clients that I get in there, you know, 18, 19, 20, or early 20s, and they haven't been beyond their block. And so they have a different perspective than a client who is traveled and handled other businesses, whether or not it's in the music business. If they handled another business, there's a different level of conversation. So, you know, it's not that bad. You just take the client where they are, and we start the education process there. Sometimes it's quicker than others. So, you know, we don't get frustrated with them. We just educate them and try and keep them on the rails. I think that there's been a lot more education now for artists, especially. There's been a lot more talking about, hey, understanding how contracts look, understanding how you want deals set up, all of those things. So my gut tells me that that would in some ways make things a bit easier for you over time, but maybe not. How's that been on your end? You would think that it would make things easier because you're right. Information is power and people have the information at their fingertips via Google or any other search engine. Right. But there's almost an overload of information out there as well. So what I have seen, although the young artists that I've picked up and even, you know, athletes that have picked up, they aren't necessarily educated in the intricacies of the recording agreements and how it all works, because it's a very convoluted process in terms, especially in the music business. What are all the royalty streams, understanding what rights you have to have and what cop, uh, what societies you need to register with to make sure you have your royalties and making sure your copyrights are done. There's an entangled web of rights that have to be really gone through methodically. So they don't understand that. But what they do understand and are keenly aware of some broad strokes, like I would like to have ownership of my master recordings or my publishing, or at least let's have the discussion of what that looks like and understanding that that is of value. So they're much more likely to say, I don't know, should we do this co-publishing deal? I had somebody else telling me that we should do an admin deal because I get to keep 100% of my rights. But you have to understand too, if you're a young artist, it depends on leverage. You know, if you're going to sign to a production company and part of their deal is they want to have part of your publishing and or part of your own, the master's, but they're going to put up some money to get your career started, then we have to have a conversation. Do you really have the leverage at that point or different route? I have conversations with clients all the time. You don't have to sign here, but I'll tell them this is not a bad deal for where you are in your career. If we have some success, we come back and we renegotiate. And that's the one thing that's unique about the music space is that it's very routine to renegotiate if you're successful. That's always something you have to keep in the back of your mind. And, but I also had an artist here recently who had a little bit of success, got approached by a major label. I thought had a very fair, very good deal. But you know, he was stuck on, I want to own my master's. I want to own my master's. And I had a conversation. I said, okay, so you own your master's. What's our plan? Like, I'm all for it. Like, what's our plan, though? Let's execute a plan. I can bring in PR folks. I can bring in a team of digital marketing people. 
and people who have relationships at the DSPs to you know help get on playlists. And we can put the whole play together. But do you have fifty to two hundred thousand dollars to roll out the plan? And then they got quiet. You know, so again, it's back to education and telling them this is what it's going to take to get to where you want. There's a saying: you can build your own house, right? I can go out and cut down the wood and saw it and sand it and everything. That might take me two years, or I could hire a builder and have it done in 120 days, but I got to pay the builder, right? So there's always trade-offs. And so it's the individual artists that they have to make that decision based on where they are in their career. Uh, I have some clients that are economically able to launch their own career. They don't necessarily need a major label. They have the resources and the funds and I just help them put the team together and we put sauce on it and we go. And then when we go to a major label to do a deal, they're calling us. And then the whole leverage has changed. Now we're doing a licensing deal instead of transferring our masters to the major label. We're just licensing it through their platform. We're using their marketing team and radio resource on an a la carte basis instead of how it's typically done. So, but it all depends on leverage. Some artists are just happy to get a deal. They have very little going. They don't have any money. They don't have a team and they've caught the attention of some A&R. And you know what? That's okay too. Let's go have some success. Let's you know make a platinum record and get some singles and make some money. And then everything, your life changes and then things open up. Record labels become a little bit more reasonable. Say, so, okay, they've made some money. At their core, most record labels will treat our artists fairly. I found that. I mean, I have a lot of relationships at a high level. They've made money and everybody's making money. They're much more likely to say, okay, let's do something. It may not be exactly what we want. They'll do They'll do something. So is it fair to say that, let's say, all the artists are coming to you like, hey, I want to own my masters, I want to own this, but you're like, okay, if you have that 50 to 200K to be able to make your own type of budget that the major label would, then you have a case to own it, do your own thing, maybe we could come back and build up leverage, but if they're not at that point, then it's like, eh, you kind of have to give up something or you say no at this point. Yeah, it's not always just about the money, right? Because I have had clients that just catch lightning in a bottle. If they're very adept at using social media and all the digital platforms and they really create a community and they really get some adoption, they may not necessarily need to have a bunch of money. But if you're starting from scratch, you're not that adept and you don't have a really savvy team, then you're going to need some money to bring in those consultants, those folks that have those resources to make it happen. But yeah, I mean, you do have to have that brutally honest conversation that, you don't have enough leverage at this point to garner what you ultimately want. And just know it's rare to sign with a major label where you don't have to have them own your master recordings at this point. That's super rare still. I mean, it happens, but it's super rare. But you have to have hella leverage. But if you get that leverage, you can get it. Right. On the other end, too, are there ever any artists that are so successful, like they don't even want to do licensing deals? They just want to keep everything on their own. Well, you have to license it somewhere because you have to put it on a platform. Even if you put it out to a, an independent distribution platform like a Orchard or a TuneCore, you know, Create or something, those are licenses. It's for a shorter term period and those, all those rights revert to you. So that at its core, a license is just, I give you the permission to put my songs on all of the retail digital platforms, you know, the Spotify's and Apple Music and all the others, the dozens and dozens of those. So at its core, it's the same. It's just a matter of how long they have those rights. And then when you get those rights back and how much money and resources they'll give you. That's really like the magical combination. And there's no right or wrong answer. And that's the beauty of really having a seasoned entertainment lawyer is to know 
is this worth $200,000 or is this worth $5 million? That's where the secret sauce comes in from just having experience, being able to gauge what the excitement level is, because I've seen you know, attorneys mess up deals because they don't understand the marketplace. And so they think it's a $5 million deal when it's really a $500,000 deal. And so they mess up their client. Their client maybe never get a deal just because they have unreasonable expectations. And then I've seen, but on the other side, seen clients or some artists whose attorney doesn't understand the value and signed for $200,000 when they could have gotten $2 million. So again, that comes from just experience. You know, that's what we bring to the table. I mean, I've been doing this over 20 years. I'm getting old, almost 22 years. <laughs> How much has that landscape and you following the market changed? especially in the past few years, given the rise of TikTok and all these other platforms where there's leverage and there's a following being built, but whether that is a flash in a bottle or that is something sustainable compared to all the other things that an artist is evaluating things on? That's a great question. So, you know, when I got in the business initially in the late 90s, this was right around the time that, you know, a lot of the dope boys were really controlling the airwaves. So you think, OK, why are the dope boys controlling the airwaves? Because they had the money to pay the DJs. They had the money to pay the radio promoters. So that's what got played on the radio. And then record labels thought, oh, that's getting played on the radio. That must be popular. And so that's what got signed to major labels. Fast forward in the last, say, four or five, six years, the landscape has changed because technology is a great equalizer. So now the kid who makes dope music, you know, in his closet, in his room, you know, messing around with the dope young producer that he's homeboys with, they can go through it to a DSP, like a TuneCore, some of the others that I mentioned before, and their music can be up there at the same platforms as some of the biggest artists in the world. Now, the difference comes in, in you have the music on a platform. How does anyone know it's up there? Now, that comes down to how the artists can mobilize and get in touch with and connect directly with their fans, typically online. So that's where the landscapes change. The new artists that are savvy enough in using TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, some of the other platforms that don't have all these regulators on there like IG does and like Facebook does and allows you to get to more fans quicker. If you can do that, and you can build your fan base, you can equalize with some of the biggest artists in the world. But you have to understand that technology. You have to understand that the record labels are looking for certain algorithms and they're looking at certain metrics to see what's your week over week increase on certain platforms. And they're tracking it. There's some 21 year old at every record label who does nothing but look at metrics. They don't know good music from bad music. All they know is it's like a stock. They see that stock going up. They see your ticket. They're like, Okay, who's had this week over week over week jump? And then they tell their low-level ARs, go track this person, go find them. And that's how it gets going. But if you're not part of those algorithms, you don't understand that, you're not even in the conversation. If you just go to terrestrial radio right now and you don't do anything digital, who's gonna find you? The record labels aren't even looking at terrestrial radio to break new artists. In general, everything's online. So you have to understand that. How would you say that piece has changed how the artists that get chosen to be either signed or the artists that end up getting signed to record labels has evolved because so much of that seems so analytically driven. And of course, there's a correlation between the analytics and that gut feeling and that intuition of who's popping. But it kind of reminds me of this argument that we're seeing in the NBA now where you have analytics has taken over in a lot of ways how the NBA is being discussed and you have the people that are more old school 
preferred when analytics just supported arguments but didn't drive them. Are you seeing that as well with how things are shaking out with you and working with artists and major record labels? Yeah, I think the litmus test or the entry level is you have to hit certain metrics to get on someone's radar, to get in the building's radar. But then once you get there, then the more seasoned record label execs get involved and, you know, they get to the point where, okay, does this feel like a hit record? They want to eyeball the artist. They want to see, is this a superstar? You know, they want to fly them in, see the swag, eyeball them and see what's going on. So I think it's a combination, but yeah, it is typically a litmus test to even get in the building. Unless, you know, that A&R who just has a good ear somehow comes across the dope artist and like, wow, that's dope. And then they take it in and they don't care about the metrics because they're like, I know what this can be. Those are the true A&Rs. And there's just not that many of them anymore. And, you know, it's getting smaller and smaller. And we get a bunch of record chasers who are just chasing metrics. But that's not the music business at its core. The music business at its core is it's a feeling. It's a gut. How does that song make you feel? Did you get goosebumps? Did you, you know, like, what? That what the hell moment? Like, what the hell is this? Who is this? That's what you want as an A&R person. And I think there are still some true A&Rs out there that really get that and understand that. But even they still need the metrics before they can go in and make their case in the building to say, hey, we should sign this, especially if you want a big check. So what do you think has happened to the A&Rs? Why there aren't as many of them at that level that there were before? That's a super interesting question. I think just at its core, the major labels have moved away from developing artists. I think they have increasing pressure to meet quarterly earnings reports uh, being public, which causes a much quicker turnaround cycle for success. Whereas, you know, back when I got started, it was nothing for a record label to say, okay, we're going to take some time. We're going to take six months. We're going to build an album, a dope album, and take our time, put this together. Now they're like, nah, we're putting out 20 singles in the next four months and we're going to see which one, if any of these pop. And so it's just the mindset's different. They don't want to bet the shop on one thing. They just want to test it out, test it out, test it out. And that's what I've seen is, you know, the biggest change and why there's not the development that was there once upon a time. they rather put their money on a record that's already going and dump a lot of money behind it and blow it up because they're going to make the same amount of money as whether they blow up that one artist or whether they take a bunch of time and develop four or five albums for other artists who may or may not hit. And they've taken six months with each. So it's back to being a singles business, man. It really is. And I think that just the lower barrier for creating music and for releasing music and putting it out there is part of this too, right? Before, when the barriers are much higher, you're going to have much more effort put in at those levels. But now, when it's that cheap, it's like you might as well just spray, right? It's almost like a seed funder, like just like, boom, put it out there. Shoot your shot. Yeah, you might as well. And that's the model, you know? And again, because of how the algorithms work, you have to have new content out on a regular basis in order to stay on top of the Spotify algorithms and you know all that. Else they don't see you. And that's, again, that's the problem. But if you don't understand how the algorithms work, then you say, oh, I'm going to create this great collection of content. And hell, it's, if it takes you three months to do that, people forgot about you. Like, yo, where you been? You got to put out content, content, content. And you just keep mashing the gas. That's the world we're living in now. But if you don't understand that, you won't have a chance. You don't even, you won't even know why. And your music could be dope as hell. 
No, it's a shame. But one of the people that you do represent that I think has been very consistent with content since he came out has been Rick Ross. And in one of the higher profile cases that you had done recently, he is actually in a lawsuit with 50 Cent, who we also had a long-term beef with. So I'm curious from your perspective, what was that like both trying to navigate the lawsuit when there's this underlying beef that the two of these artists have had for more than a decade? That was quite interesting. You know, I think in this case that 50 initially started the lawsuit because he, I think he was just trying to get under Ross's skin. If you remember, he lost a $7 million case against Rick Ross's baby mother, you know, which Ross had absolutely nothing to do with. So, you know, 50's not used to people standing up to him. He's not used to losing and all that type of thing. So, you know, he gets on his bully pulpit. So he filed a very innovative lawsuit, a right of publicity lawsuit against Ross because Ross had used his song in a mixtape. You know, obviously Ross has the resource and the patience to see it to the end, which 50's probably not used to, you know, and I respect 50 Cent and his attorney's argument. It was a very creative argument. It was actually a first of its kind. And it's, you know, like I said, quite creative. But uh, obviously we didn't agree. And we won at the trial level and 50 being 50, he took it up on appeal and we kicked their ass on appeal as well. And, you know, good guys won. It's one of those times where, Big boy meets big boy, and it's a different conversation. And, you know, we're not bullying anybody when big boy meets big boy. And so we teed it up, and that's what we do. we warriors. And we went to battle, and, you know, we were successful. And that's cool. I don't, for Ross, I don't think it's a personal thing. He's just like, we handled the business and kept it pushing. We got money to make. We're not worried about this kind of stuff. We out here trying to be on the road to a billion dollars. You know, we have a whole different perspective. Our conversations are different. That makes sense. And even just the way that Ross has built everything up, I think he's putting out a book in a few months that's about building that billionaire mindset, right? The first one was good, Hurricanes, the memoir. I really like that. Yeah, no, it was good. Now, he's quite the unicorn, right? So he's super talented. He's a business person, but then he also understands marketing and the power of that. And he, fourthly, he also understands how to stay relevant and connect with the dope young artists and add value and be the OG, but then also keep on the dope music side. His music didn't age. So he's a unicorn, man. I mean, it's a pleasure to work with, be part of the team. So when you talked about working with artists to develop that Fortune 500 type of group, I feel like he is one of the people I envisioned when you were saying that, right? Whether it's what he has with Wingstop or some of the other partnerships he has, how he's continued to build MMG, all of those things are just examples of like what he's done and the relationships that he continues to keep both inside of rap and outside of rap too. Again, being a unicorn, when we came together, he understanding what he understands and then me really explain to him the power of multiples and how business exits work and, you know, why the value in getting equity in a deal can pay off in five or seven years when companies exit. So we were the perfect match because he knows how to get everybody's attention. And then I understood how to structure the deal such that it will make sense. It will make a lot of sense. And it, I mean, it makes sense right away, but then even long-term, the brand partnership deals that we're involved with, we think are going to be very successful on, you know, not just the front side, but then on the back side, just immensely successful. That makes sense. It can make sense because an artist, you know, also takes some flight with the company when they have success. And that's one of the things like companies like Instagram, you know, the Instagram got bought out partly because of our lifestyle, our success, our culture made it pop, right? 
but there weren't very many, I don't think hardly any investors that looked like us who had equity when they sold out for $6 billion initially. So we had, that has to change. You know, if we're going to help a platform bring eyeballs to it and we're going to help that platform launch in the culture, we have to have equity. Like we have to have a real conversation. Otherwise, I'm going to support something else. And so I think that's the real change here. And this is our opportunity to get a piece of the equity in things that have the potential to blow up, especially on the technology side, which is, I think, you know, one of the things that I have some core competency competency is like I was telling you, I've invested in crowd album with Tracy and that was almost 10 years ago. Right. So I've been in this space for a while, but bringing that mentality to the entertainment space and saying, Oh, you have value, bro. This is how we're going to take your value and get you paid now as a brand ambassador, but also get you some equity. So when this exits at, you know, a billion dollars or $5 billion, you get another big ass check. Something you never even imagined that changes your whole wealth perspective. That's what many of the artists never had a conversation like that because it's core. Many of the entertainment attorneys don't have that finance background. They weren't doing VC deals. Before I went to law school, I was a financial analyst with Nations Bank. So I have a core finance background. So my conversation is just different and my perspective is different. I see opportunity. I think I bring a lot of value to clients in that regard. Yeah. And with Ross specifically, I would love to see someone like him getting a piece of equity in some of these companies that I know are going to be coming out of this whole Miami tech scene that's been getting more and more attention the past few months. Yeah, already working on it. Yeah. That's good to hear. We just, I was just down there. Ted Lucas's primed in with the mayor and, and politics down there. So we're already having those conversations. But yeah, really, to me, I didn't realize how much Miami had really come on the scene in terms of the tech. You know, obviously, I've always known Silicon Valley and Boston's been really at the forefront, especially on the financing side. And where the financing is generally the, the people who all the technology folks and all the programmers are generally gravitate towards there. But Miami has really come on as of late as a core hub for technology companies basing their operations there, which means they need talent there and you know just a conglomerate. So I'm super excited about the possibilities and yeah, stay tuned. Yeah. I actually had Ted on the podcast a couple of months ago and I brought up to him, I'm like, hey, you're in Miami. You've been following this. And he was like, you know what? I actually just had a meeting about this today. And he was like, you're in San Francisco. How did you hear about this? And I'm like, hey, man, word travels fast. Bird travels fast. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Now, Ted's good dude. Good dude. Yeah. No, he's good people. But I guess on the topic of Miami, I know one of the other clients that you have or did have at one point is the Marlins. And I'm sure that must be very different because you have artists, you have entertainers, but representing a team, that must be a very different experience. What's that like compared to some of the other clients that you've represented? You know, representing a major sports team is... You know, I also represent and have represented, you know, UPS, Crystal's Restaurants, you know, big restaurant groups and whatnot. And so, you know, all those organizations have an in-house counsel. They have a general counsel and a, and a team of attorneys. And they will, at points in times, need outside counsel to handle certain things. So, you know, because of my relationships with you know, a number of in-house counsel, when they need something that, you know, is either in my expertise or something that my firm can help with, you know, we get the call and we come in and hire guns and we do our thing and turn them back over better than we found them and, you know, keep it moving. So it's a little bit different dynamic because very savvy, obviously, I'm dealing with their in-house counsel and I'm talking lawyer to lawyer, or maybe we have the CFO on the call if there's something that's a big, you know, financial implication to their bottom line. But it's definitely a different level of conversation. But again, 
I try and take that level of conversation and impart that to the entertainers and the athletes that I represent individual capacities because I've seen how big corporations act and the decisions that they make and the thought process that they go through in order to make a decision and try and bring that same process into the entertainment and sports individual and their smaller team so that they have more likelihood of success. I bet the fact that they do have the in-house counsel does mean that you probably have to wear less of those hats that you may normally have to wear relative to managing uh, musicians and probably more of the legal stuff. But, you know, I'm sure that has, you know, plenty of other dynamics to it as well, as you had mentioned. Oh, certainly does. Certainly does. With that, I feel like it's almost inevitable that whether it's the Hawks or the Heat, like some type of NBA representation at some point. Well, I mean, I know, I mean, locally, I know all the general counsels and I do business with them negotiated stadium licensing deals on behalf of clients with each of the teams locally and bunch throughout the country. So yeah, I mean, I have tons and tons of relationships on the sports side and in-house counsel on the sports side. I'm also the president of Black Entertainment Sports Lawyers Association. That obviously gives me privy into a lot of companies and in-house counsel and just knowing people in the business, which is obviously of value to my clients because there's a legal stuff. And then there's sometimes just the relationship, being able to pick up the phone and say, hey, this has a potential to be a problem. We don't have to spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let's talk this through. And you'd be surprised at how many times I'm able to do that and just avoid a lot of legal wrangling and just get right to the core of it because I have a relationship with someone and, you know, get something resolved. Not all the time, but, you know, it does come in a value at times. If we had to go to war, we go to war. I love it. Don't make me bust in the head. I will. But, you know, I'm going to be nice and try and get it done amicably. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure you must get hit up a lot, too, by young associates, people in law school just starting out that are like, hey, how can I get to where Leron is 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What are your advice points? What do you normally share to give them some pointers on how they can level up their career? First of all, be a student of the profession. If you're in law school, get good grades, take it personal, get involved with organizations, be a top student, top whatever that is for you, be the best student you can be. Don't just take it lightly. Then when you get your first job, wherever it is, whether it's being at a law firm or in-house, whether you like it or not, there's something of value you can pick up from that. You know, when I first came out of law school, although I was a sports agent, I worked for a big litigation firm and I never wanted to do litigation, but they gave me a job and I needed to work. So I was doing business litigation, slip and falls, labor and employment stuff. I didn't like labor and employment. I didn't like slip and falls. I didn't like all that kind of stuff. But guess what? I learned how to be a good litigator. And so when I went to the boutique firm, I started doing more transactional work. But because I did litigation at a big firm, all those partners at the big firm, at the boutique firm, they gave me the litigation to handle. So I handled tons of litigation, mostly in the sports entertainment space because they didn't want to do it. They were doing the transactional work. So I did the litigation. But because I got the background in doing the labor and employment, doing the business litigation, doing the slip and falls. Now, when my clients like a Ross has, you know, a number of Wingstop restaurants, somebody's slipping and falling. We got sued recently, you know, on the case. Now we can handle that. Now, you know, labor and employment issues. I didn't realize that at the time, but now I have better perspective because I had a broad, general, good base of legal expertise. And so that's what I try and tell young lawyers is become a good lawyer. Even if you're not doing exactly what you want, I learned how to be a good litigation lawyer at that firm. I wasn't necessarily doing what I wanted to do. But then three years later, 
when I changed firms, I brought value to that firm because I did something that they didn't do and they needed me and I wanted that transactional experience. So it was a win-win. So now I added value. And that was part of the reason why I was able to go to that firm, not realizing had I said no to the litigation firm, say, oh, no, I want to do M&A. I want to do that. I wouldn't have been able to add value to that second firm. So just become a good lawyer because you can't add value even to a client if you don't know what the hell you're doing. And don't be afraid. If you get a client that they have an issue or problem that you don't necessarily fully understand, bring in somebody who's that's their go to specialty. Your client will appreciate it. They'll come back to you. They'll always come back to you because they know you're going to take care of it. You don't just try and fix something or do something and you mess it up. So, you know, those are my things. And network, 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 network. Start building those relationships early while you're in law school, you know, when you don't need people. And then try and add value, you know, where you can to older folks who are, you know, more seasoned than you. Don't just come out with your hand out. Can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? No, I have, I'm busy. There's no way. When I was young, I thought all these older lawyers were just bullshitting and, you know, taking forever to call me back because they were just dissing me. No, we're busy as all get. So if you do want to get a mentor, don't just ask to be a mentor. Find something you can add value. Hey, I saw you do this. Here's an article that may be interesting to you. Here's something that may be of interest to one of your clients. Do something that's unique. They're like, oh, make you pay attention. And then say, can we go to lunch to discuss it? Or can we have coffee for 30 minutes, one early morning? Like you have to do it in snippets. You know, I can't even take the number of calls or emails or people that reach out that are law students wanting a mentor. Like I just don't have the capacity, but there's no one way to do it. I've helped a number of young lawyers that have worked for me or otherwise. It's not, you know, some of them have different paths, but they have some semblance of the things that I've mentioned. And I feel like you're living proof of everything you said, right? Like you are doing the things and you're in the position you're in now because you took all those steps. You were willing to do those things. And I feel like you're now doing the exact things you want to do. But I'm curious, is there anything that you're not necessarily doing from a business perspective or a law perspective that you want to do eventually down the road? I'm blessed right now in that I'm in a sweet spot. You know, I'm 50 years old. My kids are fine. They're One's graduating from college. The others are in college. So. I'm cool. I can retire in a couple of years, but my passion then is now changed. I'm in take over the world mode. Like, okay, what's my legacy going to be? And I think my legacy is helping at least five clients exit a billion dollar company in the next five to seven years. That's my legacy. And I'm on the road to that right now with some plays that are already in place. But I just think that's going to be exciting. I'm excited about it when I talk with clients and I show them the roadmap of how we get there. Because I've been involved in companies that have done that and I've seen it. And I'm like, oh, shit, I was just having drinks with the founder two years ago at San Francisco Music Tech. And now he just exited. Whoa. So now I'm like, well, shit. OK, now I know what I know. I have the relationships. I understand the financial piece. I understand how to put the pieces together. And now we're about to bring this to the black side. And we're about to add expertise and really some real direct consciousness purpose to exit some billion dollar exits in the next couple of years. And I'm super serious about that. You know, it's like I said, it's already in process, but that's my passion. Like that's where I'm trying to get to. Then I can chill. Then I can chill. I feel like, okay, I'm good. But of course, you know, my lady's always like, you're never going to sit down. It's going to be something else. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that. My wife says the same thing about me. But you need that passion, you know, 
that's one of the things about uh, I love about the music business is I don't know if you've ever been in the studio when a, a hit record gets made or after it comes back from mixing and, and everybody's sitting like, okay, play the record. And everybody's like, oh, shit. Like that feeling you have that I've had the opportunity, I don't go in the studio much anymore, but that I've had, you know, when I was a younger lawyer, I now get that same goosebumps when somebody's telling me their business idea and it's in a technology space. And I'm like, oh, that's scalable. Oh, we can put this piece together. We can raise this. Oh, shit. This is something we can exit, you know, and I, I can put the, all the pieces together and I have those same oh shit moments about a technology company or something similar that has some nice multiples. And it's just a different perspective. You know, I'm older and more wise and, you know, and I understand how the multiple games work. And so that's what I try and bring to the table, man. It's fun. It's really a lot of fun. That's good. And you're the good person for it, man. Hey, man, somebody got to do it. <laughs> exactly. All right, Laurent. Well, before we let you go, anything that you want to plug or let the Trapital audience know about? Again, I just want to say thank you to you. I appreciate you doing this for the culture, doing this for the entertainment community and uh, knowledge is power. However I can support you, just let me know, please. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.